on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here and hello, Sally. Sally Rock. Did you forget my name? <laughs> I was just trying to find a new angle in there because been this is like oh, kidding like up to episode 70, so I just thought I'd just change it up a little bit, but it crashed spectacularly, didn't it? Sorry. No, I think it was I think it was good. Maybe next episode I'll introduce you and you introduce me and then the one after do that, I'll put on your voice and like introduce myself as you and then. You're really interesting. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Really well. Caught up with Jess Mundy from the TAS unions this week. Yeah, I've just sort of figured out that, you know, a lot of people will sort of, uh, busy adults will often remark that it's quite difficult to make friends as an adult, particularly working from home, right? Um, But anyway, I figured out that all you need to do is um, invite people you admire onto your podcast and then put them on the spot and ask them to be your friend. Yeah, and so (laughs) managed to convince Jess to have a beer with me this week, which was lovely. It's a little labour-intensive, but it works, and you're right. It is sort of like you have to be more conscious of going out and making an effort now because we're so housebound, whether by choice because we're still navigating the COVID world or or just because that's the way we work these days. So, yeah, and you've got to treasure those moments a little more, don't you, too, when you're out Mm. and um, be more mindful, be more present when you're there because it's a treat to be able to do it and you just don't know when that won't be available to you again. Francis, I saw a tweet this week that said words to the effect of some of my closest friendships are maintained by replying OMG to their Instagram story every couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, my God, that's I do that. That's me. It's so easy to sort of slip into like, oh, yeah, you know, like I see your photos and reply OMG. Anyway, so I've been making some phone calls to friends this week, bothering them with my company. Do people um, yeah, still, and- still call on the phone or is that in, for some people a little weird to call now because SMS and texting and um, sending a message on WhatsApp is a, is the thing to do. But when you call someone, do they feel, are you finding people feel a little bit, you know, it's a little bit odd these days. It used to be the only thing available to us. Completely to the point where I actually didn't just start calling my friends because I'm not a monster, but I did um, post on social media explaining that I'd like to start calling my friends and having chats over the phone. And if anybody was interested, like they could opt in because I would never dream of calling someone without their permission. And I really mean that. Like I just... You wouldn't call a friend without their permission. Cold call? <laughs> Hell no. <laughs> In this day and age. So, yeah, I've I got some consent from friends to give them phone calls uh, and it's been really great. Excellent. Next, you'll be sending yeah. them telegrams too. Hey, coming up in a moment, <laughs> we're, we're going to be talking to Georgie Dent, the amazing, the one and only Georgie Dent, Executive Director of the Parenthood, uh, an independent per- all-purpose advocacy organisation that represents over 72,000 parents, carers and allies around Australia, arguing the case for early childhood education to be free, uh, universal and accessible to all. So we're going to talk about that in the context of the upcoming election. Speaking of the election, though, Sally, I wanted to quickly track back before we get to Georgie and, and talk about what was 
was happening in New South Wales earlier this week when on Monday morning people turned up for well, the platform on the trains in Sydney going, got to get to work, no trains running. They might have turned the radio on and they would have heard, oh, Dominic Perrottet and Transport Minister Elliott and the Prime Minister saying this. Have a listen. The unions were intent on causing chaos. I'm incredibly disappointed with what uh, has occurred across our city this morning. That, that, that is union spin. They cannot use um, the city's transport system for some sort of terrorist-like activities. No, I didn't. I don't what I said. So do your research before you ask me questions. If people want to hand the country over to unions under a Labor government led by the most left-wing Labor leader in 50 years since Gough Whitlam, then... This is what they can expect. There he is, the uh, liar-in-chief, the Prime Minister there, talking about Labor and the unions stopping the trains in Sydney. Except, Sally, uh, none of that, not a skerrig of it, was true. It's straight up not true. Like, it's not even a little bit true. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. You know, that the moment that the trains were not running... And it was all over the news, right, that, the, you know, the unions have snap strike, the unions, the unions. And I had people contacting me on social media saying, Sally, like, I, I mean, Francis, maybe you had the same thing. People contacting me saying, Sally, we're not allowed to speak publicly. I'm a worker, a train worker in Sydney. We want to work. We're not being able to work. And we're also not being able to talk about it. Can you please spread the word. Like it was this crazy morning and then day of like trying to correct the record, but workers weren't able to speak publicly and they also weren't able to do their jobs. And they were kind of like sitting ducks for this, these attacks from Premier Perrottet and Prime Minister Scott Morrison and the rest of them. But fortunately, I think that the the truth has managed to come through by now. What do you think, Francis? It has indeed. In fact, by midday on Monday, people had got the word, 7.30 report from where you heard that grab had, had made it quite clear that the state government had shut down the rail system on the Sunday night at midnight, even though the industrial action that the unions, and there are a number of unions that were taking, were specifically targeted to minimise the loss of the number of services or any uh, threat to the safety and uh, comfort of passengers, but very much was protected and legal action in an ongoing dispute. It was an escalation by the government and the rail services that blew up in their face. And I guess I'm bringing it up, Sally, because as we head into a federal election, we're going to see more of this stuff. We're going to see more of that sort of anti-union red-baiting rhetoric uh, that is going to come from the likes of Dominic Perrottet uh, and Scott Morrison and other state leaders and uh, candidates around the country. So it's a little warning sign that when you hear this stuff, uh, you know, do a bit of digging. And uh, have a bit of critical thinking because this is a trope that's going to get wheeled out in an ongoing scare campaign about unions and their political opponents and we need to call it out in a particular instance like this when we hear it and see it because it is just flat out bullshit. (laughs) That's right. And, you know, I I heard a very peculiar angle, sort of anti-union angle on Insiders, the good insiders um, on the ABC recently where journalist James Campbell was commenting on political donation rules and was saying, well, you know, is it so bad that the Liberal Party have all these secret donors because the Labor Party have the unions? As if hundreds of thousands of working people chipping in 
like a small amount of their salary each month because or each week because they believe in you know collective action and workers rights is the same as well I don't even have a comparison point because I don't even we don't even know who who the secret donors are to political parties but um yeah so it'll be it'll be interesting to see what else is wheeled out over the course of the election to blame unions or shame unions there's going to be a lot of people watch out, batten down the hatches and, uh, yeah, step up and fight back when you can and when you hear it. You've got the uh, full lowdown on all of that. Let's now talk with Georgie Den about what early childhood education should look like once we get to a federal election and beyond. On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Sally, as we were saying before politics, election, it's all upon us, right? And one of the things that's going to matter most to working people is what early childhood education and childcare look like coming out of our upcoming federal election. That's right. And we're just, we're seconds away from bringing Georgie in. In fact, let's bring her in. Georgie, welcome, because I want to ask this directly to you. Hi, Georgie. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So I have noticed already that as we head into this election period, early childhood education and care has already been described as a women's issue. Uh, And I just wanted to get your initial thoughts on that framing. Yeah, look, and it's a it's a very good question because in an ideal world, the issue of early childhood education and care would impact dads in the same way that it impacts mums and therefore it wouldn't necessarily be a women's issue, it would be a family issue or a parents issue. But part of the problem and indeed part of the reason why we actually need to tackle our early childhood education and care system is because the current model perpetuates the idea that mums are primary carers and dads are primary earners. And because that is the arrangement that our policies perpetuate, that's the reality for families. And so at the moment, it is actually mums whose work is impacted by the cost of care in a way that it's not impacting dads. So are you saying that I should give up my like <laughs> literary framing <laughs> frustration and actually just accept the reality of like who this policy actually Look, I think that I'm really focused on us moving to a system that works better for children, for families and for early educators. And I suppose the other component that does quite legitimately make early childhood education and care a women's issue is because you know, upwards of 95% of the workforce are female. Early educators are among the lowest paid workers in Australia. If you were a, um, a Brickies labourer with a Cert 3 qualification, you're going to be earning about 35% more than what an early educator would be. And so that is the other reason why while we might fight for a system in which early education and care impacts men and women equally, at this point where we are in Australia, it actually does impact women more than it impacts men. And I think rather than sort of being too caught up in that, what we need to be caught up in is how can we create a system that works better for children, for mums and dads, as well as for early educators. 
So there are a number of issues in this, aren't there? So there's the gender equity issue around the division of work when it comes to looking after raising and educating children. There's the economic issue that is very much tied up in access to jobs and well-paid jobs for workers who are involved in providing expert early childhood education. And there's also the issues around the gender pay uh, equity that comes along with women predominantly providing that care in making up the gap where there isn't early childhood education uh, available to them and then falling behind when it comes to their economic independence and losing out when it comes to the world of work. There's a lot going on. Yeah, absolutely. And so, look, when it comes to what we might achieve if we were to reform our early education and care system. There's a couple of outcomes I think that we would all agree we'd like to meet. And they are that first, I think we would all agree that we want an early education and care system that delivers the best outcomes for children. Now, at the moment in Australia, one in five children arrive at school developmentally vulnerable. Two in five Indigenous children arrive at school developmentally vulnerable. We know that when kids arrive at school and they're developmentally vulnerable, they rarely, if ever, catch up. We also know that if children attend just one year of high quality early education and care in the year before they start school, they're half as likely to arrive at school behind. So we need to look at that and recognise that at the moment, the children who would benefit the most from early learning are still the least likely to attend. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. There are accessibility issues, there are affordability issues, there are suitability issues. There's inconsistent quality or patchy quality depending on where you live and depending on the kind of service that you've got in your neighbourhood. So even if we were to just look at this from a child's perspective, this is an opportunity for Australia to make an investment in literally setting children up for lifelong success. And we know it's possible, right? Like in nearly two years ago now or 18 months ago when the first pandemic 1.0 hit, you know, when we were put into lockdown and there were all those drastic measures being taken across the country, there was this brief period of time when childcare was free. We know it's possible. And, and and what struck me from that period, I mean, there was a lot of things going on, was just how simple it was. It was almost like a stroke of a pen. That sort of fee-free period was literally a quantum leap that I could not believe what my ears were hearing when I was listening to that announcement. And I think it is really important to remind families of that time because so many families are just completely accustomed to the system we have and that is that they are spending a really significant proportion of their household income on early education and care. It's just the way it is and people accept it. When there were three months of parents not having to pay fees, the difference it made in those families was extraordinary. So we surveyed our members at the parenthood once it was turned off, once the fee-free period was turned off. The very last question in the survey we did of about 1,400 parents was, do you have any comments about what free early education and care meant for your family? And it was an optional, no one had to answer that. But the number of people who wrote things like, it meant I didn't have to worry about our weekly grocery bill. It meant I could get fresh fruit and vegetables without even thinking about it. We could save money for the first time. Now, the fee-free period 
put a lot of pressure on services themselves and on early educators. So it wasn't a perfect arrangement. But what it shows is that it was possible for us to make a really dramatic change really quickly that totally overhauled the way that families are expected to pay for for what is effectively an essential service. And I think that's what we have to keep coming back to. And that is We're really comfortable in Australia with funding public education. There are very few people, I'm yet to meet a person who has said to me that parents don't deserve to have a spot for their five or six-year-old at the local primary school when that child is about to turn five or six. We are very comfortable with that. But actually what happens between zero and five is so richly formative in the development of a child's brain that that's actually the time where we have the most opportunity to set children up for success. And that's why even really conservative governments around the world, like Japan, have invested really heavily in those early years, not because they're looking at at it as a form of middle-class welfare in the way that sometimes people like to frame it here, but because it is a critical component of kids' education. And we need to keep reminding ourselves that we're all really comfortable with having basically free primary school. We had free early education and care for three months. It is absolutely possible to get to that place and the upsides to getting there are literally infinite. So the Parenthood was part of uh, a number of organisations with the Centre for Policy Development that put together Starting Better, a, uh, a policy paper which was about a guarantee for young children and families and how to make that dream of early childhood education a reality for millions of Australians. And there are so many bits to pick through this which are important. One that stuck out to me was that uh, in 2021, 120,000 Australian women entered the paid workforce but couldn't access suitable early education and care for their children. So when you talk about structural barriers for women uh, on the path to genuine economic equality and independence, that is a mighty big wall to get over. If you can't even get into the paid workforce and start earning, uh, doing the work you want to do because you're good at it and you love it and you've got a passion for it and earning some money that might give you uh, the foundations for economic independence, you're stuffed before you start. Absolutely. And those figures aren't included in the unemployment numbers. And also what we don't capture in our unemployment numbers is how many women are working, you know, two shifts a week or two days a week, not because that's all they want to do and not because that's all their family ideally needs, but because that's literally all that they can afford. After that, it just doesn't make sense to go back to work. And, you know, when we talk about women's engagement in paid work in Australia, I I I don't think you can go past the fact that, so the World Economic Forum has published a global gender gap index every year since 2006. And they look at over 150 countries. They look at the gap between men and women in those countries on health outcomes, on educational attainment, on political representation and on workforce participation. Australia has had the number one rank for female educational attainment since 2006. In 2021, we rank 70th for female workforce participation. And that highlights the incredible structural barriers that women in Australia face when it comes to engaging in paid work. And we know that engaging in paid work is basically the only path to creating some semblance of economic security. So there is not a magical world in which people can earn a living and support their family, provide for their family if there's not income. And at the moment in Australia for women, 
it is so difficult to even engage in paid work that they can't even dream about that. And that's not because women are not educated or skilled or ambitious or hardworking. It's because they are locked out of the workforce because our early education and care is so expensive that they can't afford to work. That is extraordinary, that statistic. I'm I'm floored. I mean, I, I'm simultaneously floored and I suppose not surprised, but look at me, I am surprised. And I think I imagine you would agree, Georgie, like it, it is so profoundly unfair to women who are, you know, unable to pursue their aspirations and their career um, desires or, you know, or their, or their uh, personal financial security and all the rest. Like it is, it's unfair on a personal level. But also what a ridiculous set of policies for a, a national economy, like that you would educate 50% of the population and then shackle them um, with like profound disadvantage on actually getting into the workforce. Yeah, it is. I mean, so there are a couple of analogies that I use. So early education and care is one of the critical policies that is recognised globally as being very influential when it comes to um, the capacity of women to engage in work after they have children. But the other policy that is also really critical is paid parental leave. Now, if you think about it like this, having an adequate and equitable paid parental leave policy that enables parents, not just mums, but parents to share the care and you have affordable quality early education and care, they are effectively the roads and bridges that families need to get between work and home. And at the moment, those roads and bridges are not there. And it is mums then who can't actually adequately move between home and work. And so they don't. And so they end up paying the price for that because they don't have financial security. They don't have the option of accumulating super. They don't have the option of thinking about leaving a relationship that is potentially dangerous or abusive because if you don't have an income you've got very few choices and we have got a system that is just failing to give mums the basic infrastructure they need and we can change that so the starting better guarantee that the center for policy development worked on is ultimately a guarantee for young children and families and it looks at bridging the gap that we've got because the other sort of number that's quite shocking is that Australia is ranked 32nd out of 38 OECD countries on child wellbeing. And UNICEF, when they published... Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Like, initially I said, what? But then I, you know, thought about, uh, you know, children from very disadvantaged families and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe that, that tracks. But still outrageous. You know, UNICEF specifically called out Australia for failing to deliver consistently good outcomes, educational outcomes, health outcomes and economic outcomes for children. And none of these statistics exist in a vacuum. So our poor ranking on child wellbeing and our rankings in when it comes to one in five children arriving at school behind, when it comes to Australia having, you know, the 70th rank for workforce participation, what we have to recognise is that we have not invested in the basic infrastructure that is good for children and it is good for families. And the thing is, there is actually not a parent in the world who doesn't need support in some shape or form. So we know that children fare best when they are 
nurtured, when they are cared for, when they have parents who have got the space and time and resources to take care of them. So we can't say that we're a country that cares about children if we are not a country that cares about parents because we have got to invest in parents and families to enable them to support their children to thrive. And that's what the work that the Parenthood has been doing. It's the work that the Centre for Policy Development is focused on. It's the work that Thrive by Five are looking at. Um, And basically we're all saying the same thing, and that is we have not invested in this critical piece of infrastructure that, yes, it's good for children, yes, it's good for gender equity, yes, it's actually good for the economy long term, Um, it's actually good for the economy in the short term as well, Um, but when you start to look at the reality, you realise that the idea that Australia is a lucky country for families or children is a fantasy. We're not. So we've got an election right on our doorstep, Georgie, and the work you've been doing, the work that Thrive by Fire has been doing, the work that the ACTU and unions have been doing, such as, and we should note this, finally removing that $450 threshold per month for workers to receive superannuation, which was one of those stones in the shoe when it came to economic security for women because often they're working multiple employers per month and they, they mightn't hit that $450 threshold. They get no money, no compound interest, and it was just not landing in their bank account. So that's one small victory. We've got so many more to go. What's the terrain like at the moment when it comes to the election, the major policies of the parties and what might happen uh, to further advance the uh, cause for starting better and, you know, early childhood education in Australia? Yeah. So look, I mean, we've got an interesting situation at the moment, I would say. Um, So back in um, 2020, so if you can cast your mind back to that sort of historic COVID, the first COVID budget. Now that was after there was that period where there was fee-free early education and care. It was in those heady days where the impact the pandemic was having on women was so incredibly pronounced from the the job losses to the hours lost to the increase in um, domestic violence to the increase in the domestic labour that was happening at home because of homeschool and that falling disproportionately on women. And yet we had the biggest spending budget in history at that point that was then surpassed the next year. But That was a moment where it felt quite shocking that women's economic security and women's safety was not even recognised as the fundamental priority that it ought to have been. Now, Anthony Albanese stood up two days after for his budget reply and he committed to working towards a universal system, a universal access to quality early education and care. He likened it to Medicare, to the type of reform that represents the most significant opportunity for our country, socially, economically, nationally. It is the most significant opportunity we have. And that was a moment that was for um, advocates like myself who've been working in this space, having one of our major, you know, the leader of the opposition making the case for this reform, not just for children and not just for women, but for all of us, was very significant. And Labor have committed to um, sort of some transitional changes 
but also have maintained their commitment to universal access, which I think is absolutely critical because short-term tweaking around the edges, it might help some of the affordability issues on the fringe. You know, certainly any savings for parents is going to be good, but we need a system that actually works well enough for children, for educators, for parents, and we're not going to get that by tweaking at the edges. We actually need a wholesale commitment to reform because we need to have an early education and care system that encourages, attracts, retains early educators. We need that because quality early education starts with quality early educators. And at the moment, you know, there was a a survey done at the end of last year that showed 75% of early educators are planning on leaving in the next three years. Now, early education has always had a high churn rate, so, but, but that has been accelerated and exacerbated by the pandemic. And so we need to have a big picture lens on this problem. So the Liberal National Coalition have not committed to anything beyond, at this point, beyond the changes in the last budget. Labor have committed to changes immediately, but also and critically towards universal access. But the other thing that's happening in the electorate, which is very interesting, is we are seeing this rise of independent female candidates and a lot of them are working professional women who understand this issue and the way it impacts children, the way it impacts family, in a way that a lot of our decision makers in Canberra, in the government, just don't. They don't have lived experience. They do not know what it is like to try and juggle you know, the significant cost of care with the reality of caring for a family with trying to keep up it in a paid job. So I think there is an opportunity at this election for both early education and care reform, but also paid parental leave. There is an opportunity for these issues to be front and centre because they impact so many of us. You know, families are a huge group of stakeholders in our community. I think, Georgia, you're so right in terms of the makeup of parliamentarians and, uh, you know, getting more women in leadership positions and particularly these, you know, the sort of teal independent movements. A lot of them are professional women, as you say. There is, I think, no greater evidence of the case for more women in parliament than when male politicians give their valedictory speeches. There were several in this past fortnight and I always find them fascinating and telling because usually what will happen is these male MPs or senators will stand up and give the speech about their policy and then they'll thank their wife and then it, like it's at that moment where they'll list everything that their wives have done for the past 15, 30 years or whatever. And I'm thinking particularly of the former member for Hunter, Joel Fitzgibbon, who sort of stood up and passionately said that he had done nothing (laughs) over the last 15 years or something like that. And so will the parenthood be doing much campaigning through the election period? So the Parenthood is running an election campaign called Parents Up and we are basically mobilising our members as well as any other interested parents, carers, allies who recognise that it is time for a better deal for children, for families and for women to jump on board our campaign. We've got two campaign asks and they are a commitment to 12 months of paid parental leave at full pay shared between parents. So last year we published a piece of research that looked at what are the best practice policies for families and children in the world. And while 12 months of paid parental leave is not the longest scheme in the world, 12 months at a replacement wage that's shared between parents 
gives us the optimal reward in terms of we protect the health of children and mothers, which is particularly critical in that first year of a child's life. But we also then set families up in a way that parents are free to make their own choices about how they share the care in their homes and how they balance paid work with their family responsibilities. So instead of being forced into arrangements that don't necessarily suit them but remain the sort of prevailing setting, parents need to have choice. And what happens, we know globally that when decent paid parental leave is offered and when it is specifically offered to dads, they take it. So at the moment, dads in Australia take less than 20% of the parental leave that dads take globally. And I do not believe that that is because dads in Australia have so little interest in engaging with their children. I think it's because our policies continue to send them the message that it is acceptable and accepted for their life not to change after they have a child. Now, there are some families where that might be the arrangement they want, but I know for most families, that's not the choice that they would make. They would like both parents to be engaged, to be able to be engaged in both caring and working. The other thing that we're asking for is a commitment to universal access to quality, inclusive early education and care that is provided by a supported workforce. That is, again, absolutely critical to deliver better outcomes for children, for parents, for women and the nation. And that's what we are going to do everything we can in the lead up to the election to talk about these issues, to talk about the evidence base, to share stories among our members of how these issues impact them to keep talking to journalists so that we can have these stories in the media. Because when you actually sit down with people and you paint the picture, they're shocked. They're either shocked on all of those metrics or there's one in particular that grabs them, whether it's the child wellbeing and how poorly we fare there or whether it is the crazy gap between our education and workforce participation of women, whether it's kids arriving at school behind. What I find is there's an opportunity for people to engage on these subjects regardless of their specific priority. And then, sorry, I should say the other thing that we are campaigning for is universal access to outside school hours care as well because, as we know, when children arrive at school, jobs do not magically transform into undertakings that fit between nine and three. Certainly very few jobs have got paid annual leave that matches school holidays. So we would, we would again say outside school hours care is another piece of critical infrastructure that families need in order to be able to work and care. I just wanted to jump in before you go and tell our listeners about the extraordinary book you wrote, Breaking Badly, which is the memoir, I suppose, around anxiety and your experience with anxiety. I just wanted to quickly say that because I encourage people listening to the pod to listen to it. And I also just wanted to thank you for writing the book and also speaking publicly about anxiety because a woman of your caliber <laughs> to borrow from Tony Abbott. <laughs> Tony Abbott. Um, yeah. I hold you in such high esteem and I to have someone like you speak out about anxiety. I just wanted to thank you for that and recommend your book and just tell you on the podcast that I think you're extraordinary. Oh, well, thank you. That is very, very humbling. Um, I sometimes forget that I wrote a book because it came out in 2019 which just feels like a different world. I was about to say it was like three years ago. Yeah, it was. It ago. wasn't that long ago. And, you know, the thing is I still, I still, it gives me anxiety thinking about this because I don't get back to everybody because I am just drowning most of the time between having 
um, three children and and a, quite a significant day job. But I, I hear from people all the time who have read my book, even just this morning I was at an event and someone came up and said to me how sort of profoundly it had impacted them. And it always makes me sad because I think that the book, when I write about my struggles with anxiety and, you know, my struggles with chronic health and the various things I went through, it's pretty miserable. And yet what I've learned since the book was published is that so many people can relate. And mm. and yet those struggles remain quite invisible. We still live in a world where you don't know how many people have breakdowns. Having written a book about having a breakdown, I know how many people have breakdowns because they write to me. Mm. And it makes me really sad. But, you know, the other thing that I write about in the book is obviously self-care and how I came to kind of look after myself and manage my mental health. And I think that increasingly what I look at in the work that I do is if we expect women in particular to be able to do the self-care they need to be able to function, we need them to have access to the support and infrastructure that they deserve. So at the moment, you know, and particularly because of COVID, women are burnt out and exhausted. And it is not because they're not doing their mindfulness exercises. It's because <laughs> they have literally been juggling an impossible task of trying to keep their households afloat financially, emotionally, manage homeschooling, manage children, take on all the domestic load, the, the stress and anxiety and uncertainty that we all lived with. You know, what we've all lived through has been horrendous. And that's why I would say again, we needed to invest in these policies, honestly, three decades ago we did. But because we didn't do it, we need to do it now. And the reason we need to do it now is because it has never been more important to invest in the supports that enable children and their parents to thrive. And that is particularly true for women. Gosh, you're such a pro, Georgie, like bringing it back. <laughs> oh, thanks. Look, you, I talk about this all the time, but but you did actually throw me there when you mentioned the book. But I will also say the bit about where you can find the parenthood if people want that. And the book. <laughs> so if you would like to know more, you can jump on our website, which is theparenthood.org.au, and you can look us up on the various socials. So you could find us on Twitter, on TikTok, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, the whole gamut. Um, and we'd love to have you. So join our movement, join the Parents Up campaign and just start making some noise about these issues because it's not the time for tinkering. This is the time for wholesale reform that will deliver generational benefits. And this is, I'm very confident. Step up, people, exactly. step up. Georgie Dent, mm -hmm. you are a star. Thank you so much for giving us <laughs> some of your time on The Job. Thanks, Georgie. Thanks for having me. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Georgie Dent there from The Parenthood talking to us here on The Job. Uh, the election not far away, early childhood education. Sally, we've got to make sure it continues to be front and centre at all debates because we need this change. Absolutely. And also I was just, you know, when, I was, when we were chatting with Georgie, I was thinking about uh, sort of observation that writer and author and friend of mine, Clementine Ford, makes, which is that in households, broadly speaking, the sort of like tasks or jobs that are codified as masculine get outsourced, sort of like repairs or, you know, someone needs to come in and f fix something or build something or some like extreme gardening, you know, mowing the whatever and how that sort of domestic labour that's coded 
masculine, it's very normal to outsource that work. Whereas outsourcing housework and domestic labour that is codified as feminine is seen as a luxury and also a failure on the mother's part. And Clementine also makes the observation, which is like, what point in history across cultures, apart from right now, have women not had help domestically? Like even in sort of like, you know, European families who are lower middle class or lower class, like, you know, they had workers doing the washing or the cooking or, you know, there's, or, or there's communities of people all chipping in together. But something strange has happened in the last I don't know, 100 years, maybe since the 50s when there's all these whiz-bang new appliances to keep women at home, I'm not sure, and how now it's sort of like it's seen as such a failure of women and their motherhood if they are unable to keep up with work that has always historically been either outsourced to paid staff or just done collectively, you know, as a village or as an extended family. And blokes doing their share too. There's always that into the bargain as well. More of that, Mm. please. Sally, how can we find you on the socials? Remind people where we can go. At Sally Rugg on the Twitter. That's me. Um, And I have, you can look me up on Instagram. My Instagram account is quite boring, but it's mostly just cats and, yeah. Uh, And you are at St. Frankly. I am. And I don't know if you're on Instagram. Are you on Instagram? Kinda. I got to. I got. I got to try. I got. I got to up my Insta game. I think I'm a bit slack. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we will talk to each other next week. I'm really excited about our new introductions. Have a great one. You too. Bye bye.